Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! Welcome to Election Shock Therapy. I'm your host, Chris Moore, and joining me in my office today is... Sam Albury. Andy Bramson. And Chris Garretts. Do Does I belong mean, here? Are you, I are you the, the wrong office? You, you are, are you in the, the right place? Host this of nothing rhymes you're sitting with in the Mitchell Cone chair. chair. So, wait, wait yeah. is this a crossover episode? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't think there's going to be a lot of rhyming or non-rhyming. Maybe oh, there is. Well, well there will be. Okay. That's irrelevant to what we're discussing. <laughs> so our, our good political philosopher, uh, Mitchell Crum, could not join us today. So from across the hallway, we've pulled in Chris Garretts. The uh, closest thing you have to a political philosopher is a 20th century European historian who writes about pietism? Uh Sure. Yeah, at Bethel, yeah, I guess. <laughs> You're I mean, the I guess we could have gone with a philo- an actual philosopher, but... <laughs> no, they're way upstairs. I know, That's a lot exactly. Yeah, really. Yeah. But Literally, honestly, maybe we, metaphorically, too. You were, you, were, you were setting yourself up as the historian because right before we uh, started recording, you were commenting on Professor Bramson's coffee mug here. Yeah. Which, which, one, which one are you rocking today, Andy? I'm rocking the LBJ. I like this one because it's got a, actually got a picture, well, profile sort of of him, so... Sort of, like, it's sort of Hitch- Hitchcocky in almost. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a. It's a, this is actually one of my favorite of the my presidential library mug collection. Um, this library was not one of my favorites. I actually did not enjoy LBJ's as much as some. But no, how many have you been to? Right. Um, let's see. I think I've been to six. Although the Lincoln one is not technically part of the national system, um, it only is from Hoover on. Um, so I've been to five that are part. So Truman, uh, LBJ, uh, the first Bush, Reagan. Um, Lincoln, who am I forgetting? Oh, Hoover. Yeah, Hoover's in Where do you think Trump will put his presidential library? Um, On one of his properties, and he'll charge charge the federal government a pretty penny for said property. A for-profit presidential library. Wow. Oh, yeah, it's... It's going to be he- bigly. Yeah. <laughs> bigly. <laughs> okay, can we, cl- can we clarify about that? Um, some clarify. linguist went to uh, New York and interviewed people and figured out it's not bigly, it's big league. Well, that's what I thought when it first came out, like during the campaign, I thought it should be big league. Yeah. But it sure sounds like big league. I mean, yep. I think that's just New York accent. I think so. They bless their hearts. I shouldn't be. I don't have the expertise to do this conversation. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, I, can't keep up I don't think any of us actually have. I've only been to four presidential libraries. I don't, oh. I don't belong here. So, what makes a favorite presidential library? Um, just you know, the exhibits are nice and engaging. That they show some honesty about the president's um, tenure, but also make the case for why this person was good. I really enjoyed George H. W. Bush's. I thought it was a really. Um, it was a visually Texas, appealing right? argument. Um, yeah, it's in Texas. It's at A and M. And so that was um, that was a really nice library. I actually like Truman's a lot. It's a little mm. bit more humble, but mm. um, it felt very Truman. Um, Reagan's was very grand. Um, I don't have as good a memory of Reagan's, which has something to do with the fact that I was dragging a four and one year old child through it, I can't and they were not in the mood like... to be dragged through a presidential library that day. Um, so that was not a very happy experience. But I don't. I think that was a very nice library. What did I you promise them to get them through a presidential library? <laughs> I don't promise them things. We, just, we try to we try to actually encourage them to save the like experience. It. They liked the place where there was like a you know the horse that you could sit on to sort of I think you sit on or look at Reagan sitting on a horse. Um, sure. 
So that was impressive. That's they like the plane, but you know. That's what I was missing from the Wilson Presidential Library when I visited on sabbatical. There was no horse. Wilson riding a horse? Yeah. It was, it was Wilson kind of wasn't about horse riding. It was kind of a trench warfare thing you could go down into, though. Was it really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, was, oh, it was like the basement. Nice. And then they okay. put some artifacts in Do there. any of yeah. them have animatronics, or is that <laughs> is that like kind of, you That's know, Only James K. Polk. That's the only okay. one. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> but maybe My presidential library would be full of animatronics. If Kanye 2020 comes through. I there think that go. could happen. There you go. I think it's possible. Wow. Well, this is um, – we're not here today to talk about just – Is this a good start to the podcast? This, is, this is a start. <laughs> Amongst all of our starts, this is one of them. Yeah. Uh, it's we, not dissimilar to other starts. I wanted to call together the uh, Andy and, and Chris and Sam to talk about a number of uh, pretty big events that have happened in the Trump presidency mm-hmm. in the last couple of weeks. We're sort of settled in now, which I don't know even know, quite know what that means, uh, because yeah, I guess we can call it every in. every week seems to bring a fresh new angle on the Trump presidency. This has been a transition which is nothing but if not chaotic, right? But we've gotten a few things that have actually moved in terms of policy and not just in terms of scandal or persona. And the first thing I want to talk to you about is uh, the signature piece of legislation that was brought forward first by the Trump administration and by the Republican Congress was the Affordable the American Health Care Act, which was a repeal of the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare, right. and a replacement with, um, well, a, a, a very, very different piece of legislation, which would, according mm-hmm. to the Congressional Budget Office, have taken uh, several uh, millions of people off of uh, right. Off of insurance, a lot of lost insurance, and probably would have, mm-hmm. um, according to the Congressional Budget Office, um, killed um, maybe ten thousand people or so. So this failed, um, and I want to talk a little bit about why it failed and how it failed and what this means for us. So mm-hmm. um, Paul Ryan um, had to pull the legislation from the House. The House never voted on it. The Senate never even considered it. Why did this fail? Well, I can kind of leave this off. I mean, I think one of the things that um, has been somewhat clear um, over the past few years and has become even clearer now that the Republicans control the House, the Senate, and the presidency is that um, it's a lot easier to be the party of no than the party of yes. And yep. it's a lot easier to say what's, what are bad ideas and to try to shoot those down and to agree on doing that um, than it is to come up with constructive solutions. And so I think that's that, that to me is the, sort of the big takeaway here. Um, one of my concerns about the Republican opposition to President Obama and his health care bill um, throughout that time, even though I was sympathetic to a lot of their critiques of it, was that's fine, but let's not pretend that, A, there were no problems in healthcare because there were, um, sure. and B, that you have a, you know, a better solution if you don't, right? And so it doesn't seem like they did have a solution that um, that they, you know, that worked and that they could agree on, right? And so even though they have a pretty large majority in the House, I mean, they have about 20, 22 votes to spare um, on this legislation, um, they could not find something they could agree on. 35 or 37 Republicans were going to vote against it. Right, exactly. More so they weren't even close. Vote margin. Yeah. I mean, they weren't even close to having enough Republicans to support this. And, of course, none, none of the Democrats um, thought this was an, a superior option no, to because, Like Obama you said, the Democrats have now become the party of no. Right, right, and exactly. And But the Republicans have the votes, right, in mm-hmm. theory, if they can be united as a party to actually pass things without the Democrats. I mean, they could just say, sorry, we're not, we're just going to do it um, our way. Um, but they can't even agree on that, right? So so it, they all agreed, in theory, that they really didn't like Obamacare and they really wanted this to go. What they can't agree on is what do you do instead, right? right. And so you're getting this tussle between people who say we have to responsibly or you know try to re- replace this in a way that you know still makes um, some changes that can fix some of the problems we had and the people who just want to repeal it and say get rid of everything 
and then maybe start thinking about something to do. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's kind of a mess, and it is an embarrassing situation for them because, again, when you have a large majority uh, and you hold the presidency, people expect you to try to govern, and they, they're, they're struggling. So I know nothing about health care legislation, but I was mm-hmm. interested in this problem of how is it that you can have a large majority in the House? And I mean – I think the Senate is then a separate issue that we wouldn't even get to because right. of how this resolved. But right. So I, I did a little research. I read a piece from 538.com by Harry Enten and um, I think Julia Zari, let's say, is a Marquette political scientist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what they're pointing to is the kind of fractious nature of the Republican um, Republicans in the House. On the one hand, um, you've got the Freedom Caucus, is there yes. a group of like two dozen very conservative? Mm-hmm. And they use the scale you guys probably know better. I think it's called DW Nominate. I was going to bring this up. Okay, so up, yeah. one of the versions is more about ideology. Mm-hmm. And it found that there are conservatives, staunch conservatives on both sides of this issue. That really wasn't about ideology. But the second version of the scale is basically like mode of governing. And what it suggests yes. is that some Republicans are really interested in policymaking, but the Freedom Caucus disproportionately was interested in, I think, scoring political points it's interest mm-hmm. in partisanship mm-hmm. it's interest mm-hmm. in politics as an act of war right. and so their takeaway is it puts the party and ryan and trump in a tough spot because the other group then is there's a not insignificant moderate faction it's not well organized mm-hmm. right. in this case those two aligned in opposition but in the future how do you placate this freedom caucus group right and yet also get the votes of moderates. I'm not sure, and, and to be, I, I read that same piece, and I'm not sure I completely buy the characterization of Freedom Caucus here. I, I grant that they're not particularly interested in governing. And when we say they're interested in governing, what we mean by that is that they're not interested in making compromises and coming to solutions that generate legislation. Mm-hmm. That said, I'm not sure that they're just interested in scoring political points. Um, another way of looking at this is that uh, a lot of the members of the Freedom Caucus staunchly believe that government shouldn't be involved in a, in a mm-hmm. um, in the product in, the, in the, the process of of healthcare, for example, or mm-hmm. other kinds mm-hmm. of behaviors. These these are people who argue for libertarianism or for a very small, very uh, narrow f- uh, understanding of government, and they want to be made ideologically pure. Now, you can say that's scoring political points, but mm-hmm. you also don't want to vote for something which would tie you to a large governmental program. And even though right. the American Health Care Act would be much smaller than the Affordable Care Act, it's still a pretty big government program that they probably didn't want to support. But I think what they pointed, it wasn't just this one datum. They also went back into the same right. study for, like, you know, the choice of House Speaker when Boehner was kicked out. Mm-hmm. It was basically the same distribution. And the interpretation they offered was Boehner was seen as he compromises, right? Yeah, like he's, so maybe, I guess ideological purity would fit with it, but that by itself is not necessarily a predictor because you do have right. you know, fairly committed conservatives who, who are supporting, who, who did support the American Health Care Act. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and the, maybe to tie together your comments, I mean, I think, I think I agree that in theory they do want to govern, so I don't, I don't think they're just scoring points, but... At the same time, I think I also agree with Chris Garrett, such as especially my, my Chris is here um, today. So um, that you know, I, I think there's an uh, uh, so, some like I guess what I would describe as a lack of being in touch with reality um, on the in the the case of the Freedom Caucus, the hardcore people there, um, where they just seem think we're going to hold to our line and we're going to push that and we're going to expect that this is somehow going to happen. Um, even though there is clearly no support, right? And so we don't want Boehner as speaker. We want somebody from our caucus. Right. You can't get 218 Republicans to agree on somebody who's from the far right um, of the party, right? And so you just, you know, that's not a governing option. And in a similar way, their solution on health care is also not 
uh, a you know a legitimate option. So I I think I, I get what Chris Moore is saying in terms of the you know yeah this is a, still a big government program and they're uncomfortable with it. But one of the realities of politics is you take you know you, you have to figure out sort of solutions you can live with that are compromises, right? I mean you very rarely get a hundred percent of what you want. Um, and so you have to figure out something you can agree on that is at least better. And I think that's what, you know, for Republicans who staunchly dislike Obamacare and have spent seven years railing against um, this program, that's what was at stake here. Is it, that can you come up with something that is at least an improvement, even if you don't love it? And what they've just rejected and, and basically torpedoed in the House is a solution that at least got them part of the way toward what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they're left with now is... Well, less of care, what they wanted. Right? Um, so which is, yeah, less of what they wanted and is an even worse solution. And this is on the sort of, you know, the, the long shot hope that somehow the rest of the party is going to agree, like, yeah, we should all unite against this much more, uh, this much stronger, you know, um, opposition. And then even if you get that through the House, which is, by the way, more conservative yeah. than the Senate, right? I mean, like, what are the chances of that getting through the Senate where the Republicans have a much smaller majority? Right. Um, they really only have 52 seats, right? So, yeah, this is just a uh, – So, Andy – It's interesting. Wh- why then is it fair to say that the Freedom Caucus is just impolitic in the most sort of literal sense of that word that they just don't understand they're not willing to make the compromises that are in, mm-hmm. that are endemic within democratic politics? Yeah, I mean they're yeah I think they're ideological purists and they can win re-election doing that and um, they you know they're just not willing to to settle for sort of half measures. Um, but the reality is the full. So in the short term, they'll get less through. legislation that they actually want. Right. Right. But what's the what's the penalty of that behavior? I mean, I, I assume they'll have very safe Republican seats, right? Yeah. Like, no matter what they do, they will be right. reelected. I mean, right. The other would be you've got right strong leadership whipping mm-hmm. them in shape, or a president mm-hmm. who has a mandate or political right. acumen, or something. I mean, like, what? What I mean, is? We're just at the beginning here. Like, is this just going to be the pattern for at least two years? So here's the here's the be. prognostication. Yeah. Then, if this can, if this pattern continues to hold. And despite a electoral majority, if or, or a legislative majority, if Paul Ryan can't cobble together um, a Republican faction to pass key pieces of legislation, mm-hmm. then we would suppose, in, in traditional democratic theory, that the voters would punish the Republicans for failing to legislate. Right. But what we're seeing here is if these uh, if these legislators are in very safe seats and mm-hmm. they're rewarded by their constituents for being hardline. Right. And that may not be the case, that they may continue right. to achieve electoral victories without actually doing the governing. Right. Put differently, the most likely Republicans to get punished for this failure are not the Freedom Caucus members. They're the, um, they're the, it's middle. the more moderate ones yes. who are getting elected from the districts that are a little bit closer, right? So um, that's the irony. I mean, like it's like in you know 2010, right, when after Obamacare passed and the Democrats got smeared in that election, right, because – you know, they, this was viewed as a unpopular legislation. There was a lot of opposition, a lot of concern about how this was done. But the people that were penalized were not the people on the hardcore left, right? It was not the people who had pushed this through. It was not Nancy Pelosi, right? It was not Steny Hoyer and people like that. It was, in fact, the moderate Democrats, right? Um, the ones who had a lot of qualms about this legislation. Um, these are the ones who actually got wiped out, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, the sort of cons- relatively conservative Democratic part of the, the caucus uh, we just got destroyed in 2010, right? And so, so that's that's the, the the weird thing here. I mean, one of the things that I think to sort of explain this a little further too is that, that Republicans are facing in these these really conservative districts is their concern is 
not getting beaten by a Democrat because they're not going to in those districts, but getting um, primary. Primary right? out by a um, And so, like, in my own district, in the 6th District in Minnesota, it's a very conservative district, and this is my, my representative's concern, right? Tom Emmer, this last time, faced no real Democratic opposition, but he had to fend off a challenge from the right. Now, it wasn't a very strong challenge, and he ended up fending off pretty conservative really anyway. easily. And he's pretty conservative, right? But he was accused of not being conservative enough and being too f- in favor of big government and world government and all this. I mean, like, all sorts of nonsense that really doesn't sort of describe Tom Emmer at all, right? I mean, like, whatever concerns I have about Tom, those are not among them, really, right? But, but you know, that's that's what he's fending off. That's the, the real issue he faces. And so that's what these guys are thinking about. And they say, if they're saying we want to win re-election, right, um, being a purist and not governing actually probably contributes to that. So does that make it less likely that Trump leadership pursue more centrist? I mean, I've heard that suggested, you know, reach out to moderate Democrats, you know, those who are in, you know, Trump voting districts in 2016, do infrastructure or tax reform? I, I kind of, for my for my analysis, I'd like to hold the Trump administration aside because their policy initiatives have been pretty idiosyncratic to this point, and <laughs> they're um, that's fair. I think I think the real question is how populist will the Trump administration be, not how conservative or moderate it will be. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the clearer case is looking for Paul Ryan. What does Paul Ryan want? And for something like a like a major gov- like a major change to a government yeah. program. Um, like the Affordable Care Act, or if he was going to do entitlement reform, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, those kinds of things, I think I think he's going to run into real problems like the ones we've seen with the American Health Care Act. I think he's more likely to be able to get uh, get progress on things that he wants to do, which aren't major government programs, things mm-hmm. like taxation. I think he's able to. I think he'll be able to pass a tax cut if he wants to, and I think that will be controversial. But I don't. I think he'll find a voting majority capable of doing something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one thing, other thing I wanted to mention is Chris brought up the DW uh, nominate database, and one of the things that this that this data set does is it shows the relative ideological position of every member of Congress relative to every, every other member. Right. And what the folks who have used this study have been able to show is that Congress in recent years has become more polarized. Uh, there really aren't any Republicans who are more liberal than any Democrats. There's a gulf between the, the two parties with very little overlap. And also, there's, there's a reduction in the amount of across-the-aisle work that's happening uh, within Congress, too. Yeah. So there is a little bit of a puzzle here that I'd just like to make sure I paint for anybody who's listening. Is, even though we've illustrated that the Republican Party is fractured, there are sort of institutional uh, mainstream Republicans sort of in the center mm-hmm. led by Paul Ryan. There are some more moderate Republicans. Uh, Susan Collins is a good example of this. Mm-hmm. But the, And then there are um, the, this Freedom Caucus on the other side. And it's, the unification of sort of these two wings in the center is very difficult. At right. the same time, Republicans in general are becoming more conservative. Right. And so even though they're becoming more conservative in general, they're not unifying. Well, it's just worth keeping in mind. Yeah, there's still big tent parties. I mean, that's so. I think you know the data is really clear that the parties have become much more ideologically polarized. So almost all the Democrats um, are more liberal than almost all the Republicans, and vice right. versa with the conservatism. But 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 there's still big tents, right? I mean, and so that if you want to be involved in politics at the national level, you still pretty much need to be in one of these two parties. Um, and so they're including a lot of groups that don't really agree, right? And um, and you have these people who are hardcore small government conservatives. Government should really be out of um, you know, most things, if possible, right? Um, and that's what you're getting from the Freedom Caucus. And then you have these sort of people who say, we want the government to, you know, be pretty active, right? But we just want to be very pro-business, and we want yes. laws that are pro-business, and we want to, you know, sort of make sure we protect business interests because, you know, that's going to be good for America. 
Um, and those people often are much more moderate. They're actually pretty comfortable with government, right? I mean, like George W. Bush comes to mind as somebody who is, you know, conservative in some ways, right, on social issues, but was pretty comfortable with government solutions, right? Um, so, you know, there's there's that kind of wing, and those people have a lot of disagreements, but they're still all, you know, definitely more to the right um, in their solutions mm-hmm. than than the Democrats are going to be. But that's still a pretty broad range, and I think that's the yeah that's where it gets really interesting trying to trying to unify those people. And I mean, Boehner just banged his head against this wall, you know, for four and a half years, and he didn't even have to govern, right? But even trying to lead these people in opposition was just a pain, uh, which is why he resigns like partway through a term, right? He just got so tired of it. Um, and now Ryan is essentially trying to you know knock his head on that same wall. I think. Does this hold true for the Democrats too? Are we just seeing this in stark relief really, for the Republicans because of the way the election played out, because of who Donald Trump is? If if Jeb Bush had been elected president, would we be seeing a different Republican Party, or is this is 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 the president related to this division? So I assume you asked me to be here partly to do a historian bit. Yes, please. I'm not please really do. an American historian, so I had to do some research this morning. But like one thing that did strike <laughs> me is it's always been thus with both parties. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's. I mean, I, I get what you're saying that it's more ideologically pure in appearance. But what but what Andy just described has always been true to some extent of the yeah. Republican Party and the Democrats. But what we're talking about the Republicans first. So mm-hmm. let me suggest two books if people want kind of a broader story mm-hmm. of the Republican Party. Both came out in 2014. Um, so one is called To Set Men Free by Heather Cox Richardson, who I think may be at a place. Yeah, I think she's at Yale. But um, she makes the <laughs> argument that how do you, I mean, the basic problem, like how do you account for a party that mm-hmm. starts you know, abolitionism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, actually advocates during the Civil War, but after for a larger federal government, you know, early innovation with higher education policy, mm-hmm. income tax, right? You know, once lots of infrastructure spending is an early Republican cause, becomes a pro-business party, but then has this very liberal to moderate wing that mm-hmm. essentially keeps the New Deal, and then you get the more recent developments. And she says there's a basic tension in the Republican Party that's always been there, and it just keeps changing over time. And that's that Republicans have always been advocates for increased economic opportunity, Mm-hmm. Sure. Which, and, and but at the same time, advocates for private property, and so initially, you know, the republic it wasn't necessarily even it certainly wasn't racial egalitarianism, but abolitionism on a kind of free soil basis. The problem with slavery mm-hmm. is that it's cutting off economic opportunity, right? And it's mm-hmm. unfair competition for these free soil laborers, right? And okay. we wanted to level that playing field. At the same time, whenever they lean too much in that direction, it then raises the hackles of the wealthy or business interest, mm-hmm. those who say that's fine, and you know we want the government to help you know um, feed American economic growth, but not at the expense of our property. Right, right. and that, that just keeps. I mean, there's just this oscillation throughout American history, and so I don't know if that helps understand what we're facing now. So freedom without distribu- redistribution. Right. Sure. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, the second then, so it was a revision of an earlier book, Nick, but it came out in 2014 called Simply the Republicans. The earlier book was called Grand Old Party, and the author is a guy named Lewis Gould. Gould. Mm-hmm. And he says some of the same things, but he offers a little bit more controversial interpretation, which is that what holds Republicanism together is the sense that they defend America against the other. Mm-hmm. And so on the eve and then into the Civil War, the other was secession. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was abolition, but it was mm-hmm. also the sense of this is disloyalty, this is treason, right? right? And then, and then during Reconstruction, you know, that accounted mm-hmm. for radical republicanism. And then as you get into the 20th century, the other becomes, you know, the red peril. It's right. communism, and then sure. anything that seems too much like communism. And, mm-hmm. yeah, that holds true for a lot of the 20th century. More recently— Did you add Nazism to that prior to that, too? 
Well, I mean, it gets added in. Like, I mean, the the original act that sets up the House and American Activities Committee is actually on the eve of during World War II, but it, it easily encompasses both left and right. Mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. it's anti-fascist, anti-communist. More recently, it's it's multiculturalism, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and, and Gould even suggests, you know, this is really about race. And yep. I don't know if you talked about that before. So, I mean, I know everything seems very idiosyncratic, and this is out right. of the norm. But in some sense, I mean, historians would probably want to say here that Republicans have always been at each other's throats, and they, they've mm-hmm. never been entirely consistent. There are these animating tensions. And, of course, the Democratic Party has its own tensions that have right. always, always been there. So this, is, this resonates with the, uh, the hot topic of moral logics. Um, and moral foundations in determining political liberalism and conservatism, because you just described the Republican Party as being based on uh, preventing the incursion of the other. Mm-hmm. And uh, the conservatives, according to uh, work by Jonathan Haidt and others, um, are, are follow, the Id- or, uh, follow the idea that um, purity is an important moral logic and loyalty mm-hmm. is an important moral logic. And so keeping out the other and keeping, you know, preventing the spread of multiculturalism, for example, is a way of maintaining purity. Um, whereas liberals tend to focus on things like equality and fairness um, as moral underpinning moral logics. And so giving everyone the same opportunity or giving everyone the same uh, goods becomes a, a, a liberal moral logic. And that fits with what you just described, I think. Yeah, and I, I was, I'm just summing up what Gold would say. I'm yeah. not sure. I mean, I, I will not say I have not read the entire book, The Republicans, but like, I mean, it is an interesting interpretive thesis that mm-hmm. we can test at various points in American mm-hmm. history. And, you know, it, it does maybe have some explanatory value for recent developments, sure. right? I mean, it certainly explains the rhetoric and the symbolism of, of the Trump campaign. In mm-hmm. some ways. One thing to look for if uh, Trump's approval numbers continue to fall and in the wake of the failure of the American Health Care Act, his, his approval numbers did fall. Gallup has him at 36% approval rating right. right now. Which is the lowest they've tracked since he's become president. Right. Look for different groups of Republicans to claim that he's not really a Republican. Mm-hmm. That's the next thing to look right. for. Right. Um, I think, Especially the Freedom Caucus, I think, um, to look to sort of uh, distance themselves from him if he looks to become increasingly toxic. Yeah, although they're in a funny position because... Again, the people, their hardcore supporters were often the people that also signed on for Trump, right? Yeah. So the tea, We're talking about Tea Party, right? Well, yeah. Or just, I mean, just the hard right. I mean, like, whether they were Tea Party or not, a lot of them were probably. But, yeah, they just, so there's a, there's a definite overlap. I mean, I, I would suspect that of the people that have bailed on Trump that are not approving of him, I don't think these are the, the people who are sort of in the, the camp of the Freedom Caucus type. So there's, there's a tension there, like... It, these same people vote for these, you know, the Freedom Caucus, really limited government types, and then they voted for Donald Trump, who, in, you know, is clearly not uncomfortable with government solutions. He wants particular kinds of government solutions, but he doesn't, you know, he's not anti-government, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue. So, so yeah, there's a, it's going to be interesting when they try to bail, if they do try to bail on him, how that, how that plays, too. So, oh, who emerges right. as the locus? Of the, I mean, I, I don't know if we should think ahead to 2020 <laughs> already, but, I mean, are you suggesting something towards... I don't know if Trump would run again in that scenario. He's already filed papers to run. Right, <laughs> right. No, I know he's he's raising funds, right? But like, I mean, does this suggest? You know, I don't know if it's Ted Cruz or I mean, I, I kind of feel like Kasich is doing this in a different way already. Yeah, Kasich would appeal to sort of the the Susan Collins more moderate Republican. Although Kasich is far more conservative than yeah, Collins, is. Sure. Yeah, yeah. but he would sort of appeal to sort of those mainstream yeah. an anti-Trump mainstream alternative. Sort of. But like, who's going to be the Republican leader that that gives the speech that says this? Well, clearly uh, Cruz tried to do this during the. Uh, during the, right. during the convention, but but since then he sort of made up with Trump, and yeah. I I don't see Cruz in this position anymore. Uh, but yeah, is there someone is there someone on the, on the Freedom Caucus that might 
try to primary a sitting president? I don't see it right now. I mean, I think I think it's just way too early to even like. It, it depends on how things go, right? Is the the short answer? And the American the American population is pretty forgiving of presidents if things are going okay, right? And so, if if the economy does all right, and we're not doing badly right now in that sense, right? But, but, uh, but they might the forgive He's a little. Thirty six percent. If the economy is doing well, what if the economy takes a downturn? Exactly. Right. Then he could really tank, and then and then this gets interesting, right? But if the economy keeps doing well, and people will get used to. I mean, you get used to almost anything, right? And <laughs> and so we can get used to the new normal as a country. This is kind of a scary thought. We can get used to the new normal of the presidency is just chaotic, right? Um, mm-hmm. That, yeah, the president tweets random things in the middle of the night, and we're not sure how much of those tweets are policy, and, and there's, like, sort of these inconsistent messages going on and weird behavior. But you'll get used to that. I mean, like right now we're only two months into that, our, our socialization process, essentially, right? Um, but, it, you know, a year or two years from now, that's going to be the normal, right? Of course the president acts sort of strangely, but, you know, that's just Donald. And if he's getting the job done... Then we'll forgive a lot. I that think. normalization is really scary. If it is. the Democrats end up having someone run against Donald Trump, who is the hmm. Democratic version of Donald Trump. Oh my word! I mean, what if, what if Alec Baldwin runs against Donald Trump? I mean, that's the worst case scenario. <laughs> right? No kind of U.S. is maybe worse than Alec Baldwin. I don't know. So maybe you've talked about this because Kim Kardashian. <laughs> maybe it's a big downside because I think Chris, you're trying to pivot us to um, talk about Democrats. I mean, well, I you do talk about the I idea do, of a, I do have one question about Democrats. Well, yeah. maybe this we got. Maybe it's not. Maybe what's my you've talked about? Like, but, I mean, is is there such a thing as a loyal opposition in American politics, or is that a mode that anyone can do realistically? Like, I don't know if the current Supreme Court nomination is a test of that, but. I mean, not simply yeah. a scorched earth, know it all costs, but I, I, I think well. I see the, the a debate within the Democratic Party about that. We've had some Democratic, prominent Democrats come out and say, well, we're going to vote no on Gorsuch under any circumstances, even though he appears to be um, very conservative, but also very qualified. And it seems to me that if there was a loyal opposition, it would appear in the people who, who amongst Democrats who voted for Gorsuch nomination, or at the very Congress. least, vote for cloture. Right? Yeah. I mean, like sure. they could they could say, you know what, I'm going to vote against to preserve them, the rules, but at least to say we're going to let them proceed with this, we're going to allow the Republicans to confirm this nominee because he is an acceptable nominee, even though right. maybe I'm going to vote against him because um, he displeases certain of my constituents, right? I do think that um, Scorch Earth is very appealing right now, though. It is. Well, and the, and the problem is, I mean, it worked for the Republicans, right? I mean, it absolutely worked. They, they were not a responsible opposition. They were... Um, you know, just basically the party of no for six years, and that got them back to power. And so the Democrats are looking and saying, that's a playbook that works, mm-hmm. and this is exactly the playbook that their most, the most vocal part of their base is urging them to adopt. And so, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we have a, a real incentive not to essentially function as a loyal opposition. That's, you know, to me, as somebody who studies democracy, I mean, that's really, really unfortunate. And if Donald Trump uh, continues to be uh, unpopular with moderates and uh, independents, then I think that there's there's nothing but incentives for Democrats to do that. If right. he becomes a very popular president, uh, then <laughs> it's possible to imagine yeah. uh, Democrats wanting to become a more loyal opposition because they they don't see the Democrat or the Republicans in in implosion right. mode. Right. Do you, I'm thinking about sort of the Freedom Caucus, maybe the tangentially related uh, Tea Party, and I'm wondering why doesn't this exist in the left, or does it exist in the left? Do we have a? Is there a Tea Party of the left? We have a lot of protests against Donald Trump since January twentieth. Do those are those meaningful? Hmm. I don't know that they're as organized as the Tea Party was. I mean, it feels like they're a little bit more 
I don't know if random is the right word, but just sort oh, of. Oh, Andy, haven't you di- heard George Sor- Soros is paying all these people to protest? You right, know that, right? Right, Yeah, they're all funded. So maybe, maybe there's a universal mind. It's just very subtle. <laughs> so. Well, or, it, <laughs> yeah, or exists in other places, right? right. Well, like the Academy, right? Um, but oh, yeah. No, I mean, I, <laughs> what, where, what is the legacy of the Bernie Sanders campaign like I, is there actually a congressional caucus there around bernie sanders that could if, function if, this way and it's not even clearly he, t- he talked about at the end of his campaign about forming a starting a movement right. but if he has it's stalled that's not it's not no. present in the discourse yeah, yeah. yeah. well and, and one of the i mean one of the challenges with trump i think too right i mean this is we saw this in the primary campaign and the general election and now in, i think in his presidency is if there's one thing Trump is good at, it is eating up airtime and making it hard to talk about other things and other people. Mm-hmm. And so I think that makes it very hard to get a movement going, right? Because the, the focus is so much on Trump, the weird things he's doing, the things he's saying, um, the actions he's taking, right? And so it was very hard for any other Republicans to get traction in the campaign because he ate up so much of the energy um, and so much of the oxygen. And so there's just, yeah, there wasn't space for them. Um, again, for Hillary, too, like, yeah, the attention to Trump was negative, but he was getting the attention and he mm-hmm. was the focal point. And now we're seeing that, I think, with the Democrats in opposition, it's hard for them to think about a positive case. And therefore, like, that, that just doesn't really leave much room for a movement, right? It's just m- mostly reacting to the latest thing Trump's done or said. And that that's, in many ways, unfortunate because then you're letting him drive the agenda, right? Well, I, wouldn't there have to be some kind of wedge? You know, issue not just I mean like repealing Obamacare was not going to you know fracture the Democrats into any kind of caucus like that. But right. I mean, if it is tax reform or infrastructure project, you know, big spending project or something, right. don't you need something where Democrats will actually be stuck with a hard choice? Or maybe it is you know the Gorsuch nomination. You know, I, yeah. I think infrastructure is more likely. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of Democrats. Uh, would un- if, this was, if this was under President Obama, for example, would vote for a large infrastructure spending bill. Mm-hmm. Um, the question yeah. becomes, what if Donald Trump offers them a infrastructure spending bill that they can mostly get behind, uh, but there's mm-hmm. pressure within the party to, to be the party of no? Mm-hmm. I think that's the case where you might see the Democrats sort of fracture I between agree. governance and ideolo- ideological purity. I agree. Because that is, that is definitely a point of potential agreement between them and the president right. if they are willing to agree with this president on anything. Or right. trade policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, then, and, there, and there it's weird because uh, Donald mm-hmm. Trump has been far more protectionist than traditional than Republicans of recent years. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that way, he has more in common with some of the far left of the Democratic Party, which is also mm-hmm. or, or the more pro-union parts of the Democratic right. Party, which are right. skeptical of free trade. Uh, whereas more Democrats like Hillary Clinton, probably uh, this would have been an interesting feat of political gymnastics, <laughs> may have signed the TPP once once she became got in office, even though she said she. Opposed it before right. she helped negotiate it, and now my head hurts. Um, <laughs> so, uh, before we before we wrap here, I want to be sensitive to our time. But before we wrap here, I have to ask you guys also: the there's been a lot of talk and a lot of uh, uh, media uh, time sucked up by the potential of FBI investigations mm. between the Repu- the Russian government and or, 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 investigations of the Russian government and their potential links to me- various members of the Trump administration. As historians, as political scientists, how much should this? Care? How much should we? Ma- how much does this matter? Should we care? Should we keep this up at night? Should I be buying borscht? Um, <laughs> oh. uh. 
Well, let me let me start here. Let me yeah, let me add a, yeah, a, a piece. Ahead. Just to, uh, go ahead, IR guy. Uh, thanks. Uh, so here's the. I, I'm not going to answer my own question, but I will say this. You can answer your own. James Comey, when he testified before Congress and uh, acknowledged something we already knew. This wasn't no, this wasn't mm-hmm. novel, revelatory information, but that uh, the Trump administration is being investigated. One of the things he did say was they're not being investigated for crimes. Jeff, J- James Comey mm-hmm. is the FBI director. He has the uh, capacity to file criminal charges uh, as a part of an investigation. That is not what they're doing here. Uh, this is a counterintelligence investigation. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that there might have been uh, information, sensitive information, uh, passed from uh, – from members of the Trump administration to the Russian government, but there's not a presumption that this activity was criminal in some way. And that's an important mm-hmm. distinction, even from the Hillary Clinton email server case, which itself was a criminal investigation, not a counterintelligence investigation. Yeah. I, I just, I also think we've been somewhat desensitized to bad behavior by our top officials. I mean, it's been in different ways, right? But I mean, like, so you think back to, you know, go back to the Clinton years, right? I mean, you had, the whole Monica Lewinsky thing. And so like, what is, does the moral character of the president matter? And essentially we ruled no, um, as a country, right. I mean, people wanted Clinton to continue as president, even knowing that he had, you know, done some bad things and had lied about them under oath, basically. Although, you know, what does is mean? Right. And then, you know, you get the George W. Bush administration and we're bending the rules, probably breaking the rules in terms of torture, in terms of, you know, thinking about things like waterboarding, manufacturing intelligence, um, to just manufacturing intelligence, sending Colin Powell to the UN with really dubious evidence, you know, quote unquote, um, for, you know, why we should go to war. Um, so that, you know, sort of, you know, the, and the Republicans justified that. So that was, you know, questionable. And then Obama runs in 2008 and says, I'm going to run the most transparent and open um, presidential administration ever. Right. It's going to be sort of this new moment. And it's not. I mean, it's just no. simply not. Um, they use a really dodgy maneuver after Massachusetts, of all people, elects a Republican to block Obamacare. They use a dodgy maneuver to get it through anyway. Um, because through like, this reconciliation, which you yeah. don't usually a maneuver, use which kind of was role. going to be attempted with the with the Republicans, ironically, yeah, after they yell about it and scream about it, right? They're going to do the same thing, which I just you know I had to roll my eyes about that, right? I mean, um, so you know, there's just people have become desensitized, and then you have Hillary Clinton, and you have the emails, right? And you know, no one on the left really wants to pursue that, um, and then you have Donald Trump and all you know all that Donald Trump has said and done. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just I look at all that and say it seems like the bar would have to be really high, right? I mean, to get the American people excited about this. So Otherwise, they're just going like, like to get a picture of, of Donald Trump accepting a, like a, a bag with like a dollar sign on it from, yeah. uh, from a Russian official, right? Right, right. Or handing, you know, Vladimir Putin, you know, some sensitive information, right, where it's clear that that's right. what this is. I mean, I, yeah, I don't even know what that looks like. But otherwise, I expect that people will get hunkered down in their traditional camps, which means – if you're on the left because you don't like Donald Trump, you're going to yell about it. If you're on the right, um, you're going to be, um, you know, you're going to be defending him. And if you're in the middle, you're going to be thinking this is really bad and it looks a lot like other things we've seen. Um, and yeah. so, yeah, I just I don't know. It's, I, I kind of wonder, like, what, it, what does it have to do to shock us to make this serious enough to actually get a serious bipartisan attempt to actually do something to, you know, I mean, like in an extreme case to impeach. Right. And. And I don't even know what that looks like now because because of that polarization we were talking about. Yeah, I don't know either. I, I think because there's so much smoke, it gives yeah. people the sense there's <laughs> some kind of. But like, I, this is unprecedented. I mean, I, I think I think Andy, you're right about the the basic pattern. We just come to expect this mm-hmm. varieties of misbehavior at that level. But you know, what is the comparable activity to like whatever that 
whatever yeah. that threshold is yeah. that we're feeling a way toward. I mean, like the closest one is the, you know, entering the Nixon administration, right? Right. Um, yep. Kind of backhanded dealing with North Vietnam to sabotage mm-hmm. peace effort. Um, secret secret war in Cambodia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so. I don't know. Like I don't. I don't. I mean, except for very hardcore progressives, I don't know that anyone expects seeing your, you know, Scrooge McDuck money bag being handed over from Putin to Trump. But, I mean, some degree of not just inadvertent, you know, careless talk, you Mm -hmm. know, um, is a prelude to diplomacy, but, you know, some degree of collusion or evidence of compromising business interests, right? Right. I mean, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I, I... I think it gets. I think we are being desensitized. Like I felt yeah. this myself. Like yeah. I remember the feeling, like of January. This just is not normal. And how can we possibly? Right. Here we are in March. I almost just, you know, kind of found the new normal. And mm. I, I wonder what it would take to actually break through my kind of cynical. And jaded. to break through it enough right. to say, well, this isn't this the la- the latest. Uh, this isn't just the latest egregiousness. This is yeah. a, um, right. this is actionable. Yeah. Right. Well, well, and, well, and also yeah. to get through to enough. Trump voters, right? Is that well? This is yeah. not just a political machination by you know the Democrats or by the establishment or something, mm-hmm, right. but mm-hmm. I mean, where they would actually break through the fake news cycle and they would truly be bothered by it, right. and that support would evaporate. Yeah. I, I will say yeah. this: I do think it's a sliding scale um, to the extent that, and I think I do think this popularity thing matters. If Trump remains very unpopular or be, becomes more unpopular than he is now, the bar gets a little bit lowered for that thing to be sure. w- for what it is sure. because it gives Republicans cover. Yep. Uh, but if he if he if his popularity climbs, I think that bar gets real high. Right. And I, I think that and that is the interesting piece of all this, right? Because Donald Trump is not a true conservative, right? He's not. I mean, he's not even really a true Republican. He was <laughs> recently like he decided to become a Republican to run for president. But you know, I mean, he's gone back and forth. He's to be Democrat, fair, he became a Republican. Some ways in advance of his presidential well, yeah, aspirations, like he, was, he was Republican longer than Bernie Sanders or the Democrats. So there we go. We'll there give we him go. that. Thank you. Right, um, but but he's not. I mean, he's not sort of a person whose views have you know over time been consistent with where the most of the party is. Right. I mean, they are ostensibly on paper now, where you know on the, with the party on a lot of things. So all that to say, like it's easier to see the Republicans abandoning him than it would have been to see the Republicans abandoning George W. Bush or to see the Democrats abandoning Bill Clinton or. Barack Obama, because all three of those people were people who were very much sort of, um, you know, faithful party members who had a long track record of being faithful party members. And, um, you know, there was no doubt about sort of where their loyalties lay. Right. I mean, they were clearly members of this party and had been for a long, long time. Right. Um, Whereas Donald Trump in the past, you know, couple decades has been a member of the Reform Party. He's been an independent. He's been a Democrat and he's been a Republican. Right. Mm -hmm. All of those have been sort of his proclaimed party identifications. Um, so, you know, that that makes it easier if if he does get unpopular for Republicans to discover that, in fact, oh, this guy is not actually all that great. Right. And maybe we could get rid of him, especially when you've got Mike Pence, who is much more in line he, with a few days know, are um, yeah, Obama, Bush and Clinton as far as a, as a party member. Right. Um, sitting in the wings waiting to replace him if needed. Right. So that makes it easier, too, I think. But we'll see. Well, there's one more thing. I know we're, over, we're near the end of our time here, but we have Professor Garrett's with us here, uh, who often writes at the Pietist Schoolman uh, blog um, about higher education issues. Mm-hmm. And one of the news stories of the last 48 <clears throat> hours was that uh, House Republicans um, have been at work to help deregulate, remove some of the regulations on for-profit schools. Have you been following this story? Uh, a little bit, yeah. Um, on a scale of one to, I need to update my resume. How worried should I be about this being at a nonprofit higher educational institution? Um, like 
four or five. I mean, like it fits okay. a broader pattern. I mean, like during the campaign, Donald Trump said very little about higher ed. Mm-hmm. The Secretary of Education does not have a great deal of higher ed background herself. That's but good. you know, from what we do <laughs> know, that, I mean, I think yeah. there are some. You know, our president actually ran a for-profit higher ed institution briefly, right? Um, uh, right, and, and like it, successfully. Yeah. And I mean, I think there is broader <laughs> support with that among many Republicans, at least, and. So I, I'm I'm always of two minds. I like my brother actually works in for profit higher ed. I okay. respect what he does. I also know through that mm-hmm. there are good reasons for regulation. I mean there there is real manipulation of mm-hmm. the kind of mm-hmm. lending the federal government makes available mm-hmm. to people without realistic prospect of graduation or of getting right. a job, of ever repaying it. Like I think there are real good reasons to regulate for profit higher ed, even though I think it does in some ways fill in some some gaps that are left by more traditional nonprofit, mm-hmm. public mm-hmm. and prior, private. So, I, I, I mean, that, that is a place. I mean, the other thing is generally in education, the federal government is not hugely powerful, but there are certain places That's where we can regulation, financial aid, right? right? I mean, and so I, I think it's something that I will certainly be keeping my eye on. Well, I'll keep my eye on that, too, um, if nothing else, then to prepare a new occupation. Um, wow. No. I mean, it's not that. I'm not <laughs> that getting dumb. really dark all of a sudden. Sorry. Um, well, this I'm is going to start printing more university T-shirts. So. That's right. And, and, that, and Sam just signed his contract next That's year. Right. So That's right. Maybe so we should, apparently, we should all get things in. Right? Wait, wait. Uh, I should point out that Sam, who hasn't spoken in about a half an hour, is still here and was not at a meeting for this, for this podcast. Right. Um, this is his meeting. This Sam, is what I sound like when I'm listening. Uh, Sam, when oh. I uh, – more university, do you have a suggestion from our mascot? Because we're, we're we're definitely D one. We're gonna we're gonna play some oh, yeah. black games. Okay. The Buckeyes are taken. Right? Buckeyes is taken. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there something that's like? Is there another name for a Buckeye? Um, no, there's okay. not. Nope. <laughs> so it would be great if you just sort of don't need basically kind of well, I will say this. Logo I will or... say this. Um, when I was at Ohio State for graduate school, what I went with my roommate who was uh, in pharmaceutical engineering. He was not a poli sci person. He was pharmaceutical engineering, uh, Chinese national, Zhang uh, mm-hmm. Pan. Zhang um, and I went to a um, the, the Ohio State Fair. And this was at the time, I remember this in the, in the early 2000s, it was very hip to have a sport, like a baseball cap with a Chinese character on it that represented your team. Ooh. This is very easy for the Tigers or um, right. uh, other sort of prominent animals. <laughs> Buckeyes do not exist natively in China. They don't talk um, about those much. And so we walked past this stand of these hats with Chinese characters on them. And Gang, I said, there's the Ohio State hat. And he starts laughing. And I said, what? He goes, that character translates to angry nut. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's so appropriate. I kind of think, think the more university angry nuts. Angry nuts? Yeah. Yes, I like it. Yeah. I love it, actually. That actually, that works. Um, okay, there, yeah. there will be uh, merch forthcoming right. for the more university angry nuts. So can we nuts. put our applications in? Do you have an yes, online please. site where we can do yes, this? Okay. I would love right. to found university right. starting with you folks. Okay. So <laughs> angry nuts. Um, on behalf of my friends and colleagues here at Bethel University, thank you for listening. This has been Election Shock Therapy. We'll be back next week with another podcast. Go Royals. Go Royals.